I'm glad to be here tonight just to get into God's word and, and worship the Lord and fellowship with you guys. And it's just awesome. Just had a, a, a quick prayer request um, before we get into God's word tonight. Um, good friend of ours, Pastor Casey Kendall from California. He's been out here teaching before. His mom passed away um, just today, I believe it, it was. And so just wanted to pray for the Kendall family. Uh, he was on staff. Casey's on staff with my pastor, Pastor Dennis, and then now he's doing a new work down in Southern California, did his own thing, but just a great family, great people, and so uh, Casey's mom is home with the Lord, but uh, just wanted to pray some comfort for them, and so uh, let's pray for them, and we'll pray before we get into God's Word. Lord, thank you for your love and grace. Um, thank you for the work that you did in Kathy Kendall's life, Lord, in using her to minister to many people, and and Lord, just the gift you gave her, now she's there with you, Lord, in your presence, where there's no more tears, no more struggles, Lord, just a peace. And so, Lord, I just pray for that peace now for Casey and his wife Lisa, for Delvin, uh, uh, Casey's dad, Lord, just during this time that you bring them comfort, Lord, I, I know that it hurts, I know they're going to miss her, and just pray just for the peace for their family, and uh, Lord, we also want to pray. We want to lift up Bruce and Bonnie and their situation with uh, Bonnie's mom and, and dad and the whole family situation going on there. Lord, just pray for wisdom for them and, and strength as they deal with some issues. And, and uh, Lord, you are a great God, and nothing takes you by surprise. And we just come to you and ask you for wisdom and help in our time of need. And we know that you're there. We know that you're here. And so that, that's what we're asking, Lord. And Lord, we also ask now that you give us uh, just... Uh, understanding of your word tonight uh, as we dig into your word judges chapter three lord that you would just speak to our hearts give us not only information but application to change us to draw us closer into our relationship with you we commit this night to you in jesus name we pray amen all right judges chapter three this evening i think everyone has their bibles looks like they're already turned there and ready to go the thing about judges is it's a, a book of choices. It's a book about making the right choices versus making the wrong choices. Moses said to the children of Israel prior to entering the promised land, he said this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 and 20. This is in the New Living Translation. He says, Today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and committing yourself firmly to Him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What a, what a beautiful, wonderful problem. A choice they're given. But Moses also warned them in Deuteronomy 30, verse 17, But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. We're all given choices in life. Oh, that you would choose life, Moses says. If you choose life, that means that you choose to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments. But in, in, in making those right choices, God promises blessings in our lives. The Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. We know that, that David said in Psalm 19, 11, that in keeping God's word, there is great reward. 
But Moses, it says here, if you don't keep the word of the Lord, the Lord says, if you're drawn away and if you worship other gods and serve them, then you shall surely perish and you shall not prolong your days in the land which you crossed over into the Jordan to go to possess. Well, they crossed over into the Jordan, made some right choices, made some wrong choices, and they kept going back and forth. In fact, that's what the book of Judges is about. I mean, as they crossed over into the Jordan, you know, we did, Judges describes for seven times which they went through this cycle of right and wrong. The people, they're, they're devoted to God. The people delve into sin. People are defeated by their enemies. The people deplore the situation that they're in. The people are delivered by the judges. And it starts all over again seven times. And it's a cycle. I mean, the, you know, first under the leadership of Joshua, the people were devoted to God, but then they, they delve into sin. Look back in your Bibles to chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Some phone, someone's phone's going off. I think it's in the back room. Okay. Oh, well. <laughs> Don't answer it. <laughs> Just look back at chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So then they were defeated by their enemies. Look at, at verse 14 of chapter 2. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Now, now they deplore the situation they're in. They repent. Drop down to the end of verse 18 of chapter 2. The last part of that. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. So now they're crying, oh, this is horrible, this is horrible. The Lord has pity on them. In the beginning of verse 18 of chapter 2, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. And you think, great, they're on the right track. Again, but it just goes back and forth. Start right back in. Look at verse 19, chapter 2. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. What a roller coaster life is what uh, the author is saying here. Because they didn't choose to love the Lord and obey the Lord and because the Lord loves them, he, he's going to allow them to be tested, to be tried. We know that the Bible says for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so he allows them to be in situations and circumstances that will force them to rely upon the Lord for their deliverance. Now, I wish that we could say that this doesn't apply to any of us here. <laughs> you know, that, that, oh, it's just not true. You know, no, it does. God uses circumstances and situations to test us and to help us get back on track of where he wants us to be. So with that said, look now at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left there, he might test Israel by them, to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses." So the Lord allows these pagan nations to stay in the land with them, verse 4 says, to see if, see, see if, if the, the Israelites, if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, if they would learn obedience. 
In the same way, why does God allow temptation and trials and tests to still come into our lives after we come to Christ? Same reason. So that we learn obedience. You know, in school, you spend days, weeks, months learning about a certain subject. But the real gauge of whether you've learned the subject is when you're given that test. And that test score reveals, you know, you know, to your teacher just how well you've learned, what you've been taught, how you're doing. Well, the tests of the Lord are the same thing. He's been teaching us many things through His Word. But then He allows a trial to come into our lives, a time of testing to see if whether or not what we've heard what we've learned from God's Word will affect how we respond, how we react, how we live. Now, you may object to the difficulty that you're facing. You may not like that the Lord is leaving you in enemy territory. But God knows that ultimately, it's for our own good. And because He loves us, that we can trust that He knows what's best for us and, 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 we're, and we'll not be in that trial a second longer than what God has allowed. But it all comes back down to making the right choice and then acting upon it through the power of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't just instantly change every area of our lives. We talked about this last night in our men's study. I'm thankful that God doesn't show every horrible area in my life all at once because it would be overwhelming. But in the same sense, He can't change everything at once. There's, there's the times of testing. and he, he wants our relationship with Him to be proved and improved so that we will live a life of true fellowship with God. Proverbs 17.3 tells us that the, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Isaiah 48.10 Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. See, testing involves turning up the heat on us, allowing us to endure, endure affliction. And oftentimes, He will use the ungodly to administer the test. You know, that, that ungodly co-worker that's just getting on your nerves with their lack of work ethic, their foul language maybe. Maybe they come to work, you know, stoned, and you're going, Lord, can't I just get a job where everyone is, is, is all a Christian? And God says, hey, that's why you're there. That's, that's my plan. I want to use you to show myself strong on your behalf. I want to refine you so that instead of them asking you to go, hey, go party with us, they're asking you what time your church services are. They want to know more about the God that you love and the God that you serve. See, God maybe has placed you there for that very purpose. But so often it comes to those times of testing. Now, in verse 5, the children of Israel made wrong choices and certainly didn't pass the test. In fact, it would appear that at this point in history, the, the Israelites got F's on all their exams. Reminds me of the story about the law school professor telling his class what to expect for the final examination. It'll be 25 pages long, and it'll take at least four hours to, to answer the questions, he said. Then as the class groaned, he added consolingly, don't worry, all of you will be in the same boat. To this, a student spoke up and said, yeah, the Titanic. All going down. And that's where the Israelites were. And, 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 uh, and look now, verse 5. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their God. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the bells and Asherahs. How did you forget the Lord? Actually, it's a choice. It's a choice to purposely not follow His will, purposely not follow His ways. To put the Lord out of your mind because you're choosing to do evil over good. Verse 5 says, the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. So the words dwelt among has the idea of settling down, of, of setting up housekeeping. 
Again, when the Israel arrived in Canaan, they were commanded to destroy these people without mercy. But now they're, they're, they're settled down with them. They're living among them. It just, just took a very short time for their former enemies to become their new neighbors. And, and slowly, you know, this no compromise happens. Maybe they said, well, these Canaanites, they're not so bad as we're told. They're, they're actually very nice people. They're not monsters at all. The girls make good, devoted wives. There's no reason why we can't marry them. After all, we might be able to change them. Rationalizing their sin. Rationalizing what they're doing. But what Israel soon found out is that it was them that, and not the Canaanites that would change. And as they married into the tribes around them, the Israelites were beginning to lose their national identity. The very integrity of their families was beginning to break down. And so the Lord has to step in. So too, when we start to give into the things of the world and we refuse to walk in God's will and honor His word in our lives, we also open the floodgates of sin and, and eventually it overwhelms us. So that the Lord has to do whatever it takes to get our attention, to get us on to the right path. It's a dangerous thing for a child of God to live like the world around them. Again, because the Lord will step in. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Christian, this guy, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Christian, Rishathaim, eight years. Now, the name of the king of Mesopotamia means, this king of Mesopotamia means doubly wicked Cushan. Now, maybe that was a, a, a nickname that, that was given to him by his enemies, but you can only imagine how horrible those eight years were, all because they chose to sin against the Lord. There was uh, Charles Spurgeon who said that God never allows his, his people to sin successfully. Their sin will either destroy them or it will invite the chastening hand of God. You know, there's never, oh man, that was such a great sin. I just, you know, it was just so fulfilling. Sin, sin will never fulfill what, what, what you, what, you know, people think it's set out to do. See, if the history of Israel teaches us anything, it's the obvious lesson of Proverbs 14:34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is re- reproach to any people. Well, after eight horrible years at the hands of doubly wicked Cushan, Israel finally had enough, and once again the cycle starts. Look at verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So we got compromise, judgment, repentance, restoration. Compromise, judgment, repentance, restoration. Seven times throughout the book of Judges. We read here that the Lord raises up Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, to restore them, to rescue them. Uh, uh, Kenneth was, again, this is the younger brother of, of, of our Caleb, and, and, and Kenneth's son, Othniel, became the son-in-law of Caleb. We looked at this guy uh, briefly the last couple of studies. Um, Othniel is the first judge that the Lord has raised up. We don't know much about him other than all we need to know about him. Look at verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. All we need to understand is the first part of verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. I love that. I mean, this is God's Holy Spirit coming upon a person in the Old Testament. God did that. I mean, in, in, in the Old Testament, he came upon a, a, a believers to empower them for special service in the New Testament, he still does the same thing. You know, in the book of Acts, believers who are already saved, who already were indwelt by the God, by the Holy Spirit of God, already filled with the Spirit, nevertheless the Holy Spirit comes upon us 
to empower us to serve, to empower us for special things that God has in store for us. You know, one of the, the favorite verses of, of Calvary chapels and, and been around for a long time is Zechariah 4, 6, which reads, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The word might is a word often to describe strength in, in numbers. It's our collective strength as a, as a congregation. Then the word power is a word often used to describe strength without numbers. It's your personal strength as an individual. So putting the two together, it's neither the strength of our numbers as a group, nor your personal strength as an individual that can accomplish the work of God. It's only through the Holy Spirit of God that we can accomplish anything for the Lord. God's work can only be accomplished by God's Spirit. I like how Warren Wiersbe points out that there are three ways we can go about trying to accomplish God's work. Number one, we can trust our own strength and wisdom. Number two, we can borrow the resources of the world. Or number three, we can depend upon the Spirit of God. Obviously, number three is the right choice. If we want to prevail as Othniel did, then we have to depend upon the Spirit of God to do that work in, in our lives and through our lives and to receive the Spirit of God coming onto your life for power. And, you know, and, and all we need to do is ask for that. You know, Lord, just have your, your power of your Spirit come upon me, Lord. I, I need it today. I want to be that witness for you today. I want to serve you today. Jesus says we have not because we ask not. So if you feel like you're trying to live this life among your, your enemies in your own strength and your own might, Man, give it up. Give it to the Lord. You're going to fail. But if we call out to the Lord and ask Him to empower us with the Holy Spirit, He will give us the strength that we need. You know, Jesus said this in Luke 11, 11 through 13, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? What a horrible dad that would be. If he, Jesus would say, I added that in my commentary. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So just asking, Lord, Holy Spirit, come upon me for that power. Well, then we read in verse 11, So the land had rest for 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, unlike Moses, who appointed Joshua to lead Israel, the judges didn't have the authority to name their successor. When God called men and, and women to serve as judges, they obeyed, did his work, and then passed from the scene. Hopefully, you know, the godly influence of that judge would last and things would go well, but as we know, that isn't the case. As no sooner was the judge off the scene than the people were back to worshiping the bells and, and forsaking the Lord. And Othniel dies and the cycle of sin begins again. Look at verse 12. And the children of Israel did, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Because they have done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. We know that's Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So the second time around, the Lord is using this man named Eglon, king of Moab, to conquer Israel and keep them as servants for 18 years, we read. Why is that? Because sin always brings with it bondage. Sin tempts you and it hooks you and traps you. And you know the fish never thinks about the bondage of the hook when he goes after that bait. In the same way Satan snares us by making that bait attractive and, and hiding the hook. But sooner or later, if you continue to flirt with sin, you're going to be hooked. Hook, line, and sinker. And the only point, the only way to, to get free from that is to repent. Well, verse 15, we see just that. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, 
The Lord raised up a deliverer from them, Ehad, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, the author of Judges here, probably Samuel, wants us to know that, first of all, that the Lord raised up a deliverer. I like that. The Lord is good at that. He's always good at raising up a deliverer. We're told his name is Ehud and that his responsibility is to bring the tribute or the taxes that the king of Moab required from them. But we're also told here that, that Ehud was a, a left-handed man. How many people here are left-handed? One, couple, just two. Not very many left-handed people. Well, it was really uncommon in Scripture as well. Although about 13% of people that are born, are, that are born left-handed, many ancient cultures thought that left-handedness was somehow evil or a curse. I'm not saying it is. Okay, you guys, you're, you're good with that. But it was definitely considered a handicap back then. And I know back in the 60s, you know, mom would take the spoon out of the left hand and put it in the right hand and try and, you know, get their kid not to be left-handed. You know, you do it. And, and all that would produce is ambidextrous kids. You know, they can use both hands. Now, to make matters worse, poor Ehud was born from the tribe of Benjamin, and Benjamin's name means son of the right hand. So, Ehad was known as the left-handed man from the tribe of the son of the right hand. <laughs> Pretty bad label for, for the guy. Now again, in their mind, he's handicapped, he's disabled. Okay, that's not the right word. He, he's physically challenged, okay? In the case of Ehad, his physical condition was always a hassle for him. He lived prior to the Americans with Disabilities Act. He couldn't, you know, fight his case. But, but he grew up, no doubt, thinking that being left-handed was a curse. And a disability. But little did he realize that what God was about to do through this perceived disability later on in his life was amazing. Because just as we looked at Othniel being filled with the Spirit, in the same way God's Spirit would come upon Ehad to do his work. So it doesn't matter if you're left-handed, right-handed, no-handed, God will fill you with the Spirit and use you just the way you are. And he'll take the skills that you have and use them for his glory. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata and how God used her life, has used her life incredibly. I mean, I know she's getting up there in years, but been a diving accident in 1967. Left her quadriplegic in a wheelchair, unable to use her hands. And, and during their, her rehabilitation, she learned how to paint with her teeth. And, and, and it's not really so much the art that she's known for, although she's very popular, that it's her encouragement that she's given to people with disabilities. God uses her. And, and today we can look at so many things that we think are limitations in our lives, but we fail to realize that God has placed them there by design. God has a plan. God has a purpose. In this case, Avihad, he was a left-handed man, but he was also a skilled metal worker. Look at verse 16. Now, he had made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged and a cubit in length. It's about 18 inches long. And fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very... That man. So here we are reintroduced to this man named Eglon. He holds the distinction of being the only man in the Bible that was called a very fat man. So when, when, when the Bible calls someone very fat, that means that they were very fat. <laughs> Exceedingly huge would be another way to translate him. Now I read from one pastor that, that, that he said that some historians state that his waistline was 300 inches. I find that hard to believe. I mean, that would be 25 feet wide. I mean, I don't know if they make belts 25 feet long, but I couldn't find any data to back that up. Um, the fact of the matter is, this guy was huge. Uh, needless to say, this was one fat oppressor. 
We're going to see how Ehud deals with fat oppressors. But here's the thing we see, the importance of Ehud being a left-handed man. Ehud was definitely a man of cunning and courage. I mean, he's the James Bond of the judges uh, here. Because only a left-handed man would fasten his sword to his, his right thigh. A right-handed man would fasten his sword to the left thigh. So when he went into the presence of the king, they had certain security measures, much like the TSA at the airports. They would, they would frisk you to see if you had any weapons on you, but the frisk would only take place uh, on the left side because uh, most men being right-handed would draw from the left side across their weapon. So he had being left-handed had a sword on his right side, and so they wouldn't check it. So he's, he's, he's able to get to his sword where it needs to get to because he's a left-handed man. And you think all those years he may have wondered or was confused why he was left-handed, but that this moment is going to be all clear. The apparent curse of left-handedness will turn out to be a blessing. Again, so often we look at our own lives and we place great limitations upon ourselves because we, we think, well, we're different. Oh, God can never use me because I'm not smart enough. Or God can never use me because I'm not gifted enough or I'm too old or too young or I just don't fit in. Listen, God never makes mistakes. And you are the way you are because God has made you that way. He gave you your personality or, or lack thereof. He gave you your intelligence or lack thereof. He gave you your looks or lack thereof. But in God's eyes, He's made you exactly the way He's made you for a purpose. Psalm 139, 14 and 16, we're told, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. I, I love that. Maybe you wonder, Lord, why am I the way that I am? Maybe you've asked God, Lord, can't you change me? Listen, you are the way you are for a reason. God wants to use your perceived limitations to illustrate his strength. And that he does with the end. Look now at verse 18. We read, and when he, that he had, had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So we had came to him. Now we were sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then he, he had said, I have a message from God for you. So we arose from his seat. Then he had reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for it did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Isn't that disgusting? King Eglon, eager to hear the message that he had had, sent everyone out of the room. Everyone out, everyone out. I got this message while they're alone. He had pulled forces his sword and shoved it into Eglon's belly. So much so that the sword's irretrievable, swallowed up in its fat. But not only that, we read his entrails became his extrails. Whoever said stories in the Bible are boring has never read this one. This is Indiana Jones meets Jabba the Hutt right there. This is this one, one section here. But what a mess this was. But what a great lesson this is for us, a great picture for us in using the sword of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
It's interesting to me because that, that word that is used there in Hebrews 4.12 for sword is actually dagger. It, it, it's used for sword. It's meant to be used in close contact. The sword that Ehud used on Eglon was a small sword, a dagger type to be used in close proximity. Ehud takes a double-edged dagger, hides it under his clothes, and just at the right moment, thrusts it in, and, 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 and the result, dirt comes out. What a great picture that is of what happens to us when we come to the Word of God. And, and, and when it's in close proximity to open our heart, the Word goes in and the dirt comes out. God uses His two-edged sword, his, his Word to come into my heart through His Spirit and touches the core of my being. If need be, expel that dirt that's in there to get rid of that work of the flesh. You see, that's the way God deals with our flesh. Eglon is, is a picture of a type of our flesh that seeks to oppress us and control us. Our flesh is that fat oppressor in our lives. That's why we need the Word of God to come into our lives to put death to that oppressor, that flesh that seeks to control us. God uses His Word that is sharper than a two-edged sword. That's why what we're doing here tonight is so important. We're not just simply involved in some academic endeavor to study the whole Bible just to gain knowledge. Just this head knowledge, oh, I know the whole Bible. And, you know, I'm just getting through the Word. Rather, we're here for the Word to get through to us. So that when the Word comes in, the dirt goes out. There's a transformation that takes place. That's why, as Christians, if you're not spending any time in the Word of God outside of church, then I don't see how God's Word can, can truly work in and through you. It's not just enough for us to come in on, on Wednesday and then Sunday. We have to have that time alone in the Word, allowing it to penetrate our hearts and lives, to change us, to equip us, to encourage us, to exhort us. To allow what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, that Scripture is given for, 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 for inspiration of God, for, for reproof, for doctrine, for creation, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Word of God accomplishes in our life. I would hate to think of what I would be like without the Word of God going through me day by day, and week by week, and month by month, and year by year, and decade by decade. I'm being changed. The Word goes in and dirt comes out. A Christian who studies the Bible and applies what he learns will grow in holiness and avoid many pitfalls in this world. How? By applying the Word. The Bible tells us in Romans 12, too, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. My mind is changed. My, mind is, my life is changed through the Word of God. So God is using Ehud, even with the so-called disability of being left-handed, to deliver the children of Israel. Look at verse 23. Ehud stabs Eglon. Then verse 23. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cooler chamber. Um, so uh, uh, they waited till they were they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and there was their master, fallen dead on the floor. I love this verse twenty four. It says he's probably tending to the needs in the cool chamber. He's probably in the bathroom. He's probably on the toilet. So let's let's just not bother him. You know, he needs to have his time, and we'll just wait and wait and wait. We don't want to embarrass him. Wait, wait. Finally, they open the door. Uh, look at verse 26. He had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Syria. And it happened when they arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with them from the mountains and he led them. 
Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, the Chevys and the Toyotas, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at the time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. I mean, God used Ehud mightily to bring the children of Israel back to where they needed to be. He comes back, blows the trumpet, and says, victory is ours. He says, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. I love how Othniel was from the mightiest tribe, Judah, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and God used him mightily. But I also love how Ehud was from the smallest tribe, Benjamin, and God used him just as mightily. Telling us once again, it's not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Well, now we come to verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Basically, we're not given the whole picture here, but we're told that the cycle happened again a third time. Compromise, judgment, repentance, restoration. Now, what's interesting is that Shamgar, this third judge that God raised up to deliver Israel from the oppressors, instead of him using a sword, Shamgar uses an ox goad. You know, really, a farming tool. A goad was a long wooden pole between 8 to 10 feet long with a metal point at the end, a flat metal chisel, chisel on the other. And, and the point was to, to goad the ox along and, and the chisel scrapes the plow clean. It really wasn't a weapon at all. But in the hands of a spirit-filled man, it was powerful. I mean, Shemgar killed 600 Philistines. Now, this is the third judge. Shemgar served the Lord by taking an ordinary farm instrument to do an extraordinary work for God. Listen, God will use whatever's in your hand for His glory if you allow Him to, even something as unlikely as an ox goat or an 18-inch dagger made by a left-handed man. You've heard the phrase, what's in your wallet? I say, what's in your hand? Whatever gift God has given to you, we need to use it for His glory. See, these three judges in chapter 3, we see the power of the Spirit in Othniel, the power of the sword in Ehud, and the power of service in Shamgar. These three elements. The Spirit of God upon you, the Word of the Lord within you, and the service for the Lord through you will lead you into much fruitfulness as you do battle in the land which God has brought us through. What a great story tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. For your word, we thank you for just the uh, example, Lord, of what you can accomplish to a man surrendered to you. Lord, I know we'll see next week what you can accomplish to a woman who's surrendered to you as well. And it doesn't matter, Lord, a left-handed man, uh, a farmer, a guy who uses a go, Lord, that you are, are powerful to work and move in their lives. Just as the same way, Lord. You've given us each gifts and abilities and, and, and uh, tools to use, Lord, to glorify you. And so, Lord, we pray that, that we would stay in that place of usability, Lord God, that we wouldn't give in to the temptations of sin. Lord, that we would stay close to you, Lord. We, we know that every temptation that we face is really an invitation to do what is right, to choose to do what is right. Because it all comes back down to a choice, Lord. Choose to live you and to, to live for you and to love you and to follow your commandments and your statutes or to choose to live for ourselves. 
Lord, as Joshua says, as for me and my house, we choose to live for the Lord, to follow the Lord. We will follow the Lord. Help us, Lord, to live daily, loving you, serving you. Thank you for this evening, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.